In today's episode, we open our Bibles to Judges chapter 4. Chapters 4 and 5 are pretty unique in the Old Testament in that they describe the same events. The first is in prose. It basically just tells us the story. And then chapter 5 retells the story in a parallel fashion, but using poetry. The story they tell is the victory of the judge, the leader, the rescuer at this time, Deborah, and the Israelite general Barak over the Canaanites. Part of the story that you'll hear is that Barak said that he would lead the military for Deborah only if she went with him. And Deborah told him that, well, if she came, the glory would go not to him, but to a woman. And that's exactly what happened, except I think the reader is led to believe that the woman who will receive the glory is Deborah, but it's not. It's a woman named Jael, whose quick thinking and swift action with a hammer and a metal spike dispatched Sarah, the leader of the opposing army. Good morning and blessed Lenten tide to you. Today is Friday, March 31st, and you're listening to Thy Strong Word. This is the program where each weekday morning we explore the Holy Scriptures through which God bespeaks us righteous and nourishes our faith. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo of St. John Lutheran Church in Laverne, Minnesota. Thy Strong Word is brought to you in part by the Lutheran Heritage Foundation. Explore their many offerings of foreign language materials rooted in the Lutheran tradition on their website at lhfmissions.org. Well, as I said, today we turn the page in Judges to chapter 4 and to a new hero raised up by God, Deborah. And this is an exciting one, folks. And to help us gu be guided, rather, through what God has to teach us through these events is my guest, the Reverend Stuart Crown, pastor of Trinity Lutheran Church in Palo Alto, California. Pastor Crown, welcome back to Thy Strong Word. Well, thank you. Good to be with you this morning. I'm a little under the weather, so if my voice sounds tinny or something, that's the explanation. <laughs> no problem. We'll take that into account. Well, besides well, being you. a little under the weather, how has God been blessing you and your congregation this Lenten season? Well, we have been walking through the small catechism, uh, looking at the six chief parts, but using the minor prophets as the texts for the small catechism. Okay, that's an interesting uh, way to do it. Yeah, you know, it's never—you can never— learn the small catechism enough. You know, Luther wrote it himself, and as you know, uh, he himself said that he is a lifelong student of the very thing that he put together, because it really is the basics, foundations of our faith. <clears throat> yes, and we're looking ahead to Holy Week to hear the proclamation of our Lord's Passion and then also His glorious resurrection. Well, Holy Week is my favorite season of the church year, and so, you know, it's a, it's a lot of work on, on the church workers' <laughs> side, but uh, and you know what, it could be a lot of work on the parishioner's side too, but it, it's so worth it to come and take part of all of that. It takes you through a journey from the beginning of Christ's passion through, of course, his beautiful and wondrous resurrection. Um, so we, we get to sort of live uh, with Jesus in his last moments and see the, uh, the power of God's redemption. And, and our text that we've been going through in Judges, you know, we're really seeing how God is raising up time and again these worldly rescuers, these worldly heroes who are flawed, who don't do anything perfect, but here they are, unlikely heroes to which God is rescuing his people, 
And essentially, they're all pointing forward to Jesus. And even today, we get some imagery that points forward to Jesus's crucifixion. So lots to cover today. Uh, would you like to start our time together in prayer? Yes. The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Lord God, our gracious Father, you raise up our Lord Jesus Christ to be our deliverer from every evil. And you set all powers and dominions under his feet, and he watches over all things for the sake of the church. Therefore, whatever troubles and tribulations, the powers that rise up in this present world, we are assured that they will never separate us from your great love for us in your Son, Jesus Christ. So now keep our eyes fixed upon your Son. Lift up our eyes to see the joy that was set before him, which is now also our joy, being baptized into him. And may we see in the pages of Judges these words that, Hold before us our Lord Jesus Christ in the great victory he has won. Here is Father, for the sake of the same Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Amen. As I said at the top of the show, you know, this is an interesting part of Scripture where we have Deborah and Barak. Uh, they're the, the, the focus, I suppose, of the events that happen. And it's told to us in chapter 4 in just sort of normal prose, followed by the song of Deborah, which tells us the whole story again, but in a, in a very poetic way. Uh, really, there, the only other place in the Bible that I can think that this occurs, or at least the main one, is the Egyptians at the Red Sea, and, and then the song of Miriam and Moses at the, at the, in the second chapter that follows that. Um, can you think of any other places where this type of, of literature occurs in this way? Well... I would say that sometimes Paul alludes to this, like in Philippians chapter 2, where he has the text about, about with the mind of Christ. And then he goes into that what looks like an ancient hymn of Christology, Philippians 2. And then maybe our own teachings do that. We preach, and then we also sing hymns. So what we preach, if you will, in a prose style, we then sing in a poetic style. But we also have the recounting of this in Psalm 83. So we do have small parallels to this, not the expansive style, which we have in Exodus 15 and Judges 5. But we do practice this every Sunday. Yeah, and it makes sense to do that, right? Because, you know, we, we put things to, to music to help us remember and connect with them. This is a very silly example, but uh, when I was growing up, I remember being taught a song in science class about the periodic table of elements, you know, who told the elements where to go, Mendeleev. And I remember that to this day. Yes. Uh, but uh -huh. but that's why we do it, right? It's it's to help us remember these events, and not just for the sake of us remembering them, but really for us passing them down. So this is this here is an event that was not only told to us, unlike, say, the events of Shamgar, where he gets one verse in the previous chapter, <laughs> Shamgar, the son of Anath, who killed 600 of the Philistines with an ox goad, and he also saved Israel. Okay, well, they, you know, but then, but Deborah and Barak get two full chapters. There must be some reason why this particular event resonated enough with the Holy Spirit that he wants to pass it down, and hopefully we'll explore that today. Yes, that is quite a question, isn't it? Why Deborah and Barak get, get so much... Um, how many, so many words for us this, this morning. <clears throat> Excuse me. Well, I tell you what, why don't we go ahead and begin by reading? And I'm, I'm going to read, hmm, I'm going to read through verse 10. So that gets us through a big chunk of the first part. And uh, here we go. This is from 
Judges chapter 4 from the English Standard Version. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. And Yahweh sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Harosheth Hagoyim. Then the people of Israel cried out to Yahweh for help, because he had 900 chariots of iron, and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at that time. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim, and the people of Israel came up to her for judgment. She sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinoam, from Kadesh Naphtali, and said to him, Has not Yahweh the God of Israel commanded you, Go, gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking ten thousand from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun, and I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon with his chariots and his troops, and I will give him into your hand? Barak said to her, If you will go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. And she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory, for Yahweh will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh, sorry, Kadesh, and Barak called out Zebulun and Naphtali to Kadesh, and 10,000 men went up at his heels, and Deborah went up with him. Our story thus far. So starting back at the very top, brother, we get that common refrain that we're going to see a lot in this chapter. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. Um, interesting, it's after Ehud died. They he's, Once again, we're skipping over Shamgar. Do you have any insight on why that is? You know, this, this could be a, a local issue that... Uh, Sometimes it seems as if the judges in the book of Judges overlap, maybe, in terms of where they are. Uh, the events may occur simultaneously, so maybe Shamgar is in a different location, and this is uh, a more important event to relate. Uh, I don't have much more to say about, about that. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. Well, take us through it then. Uh, with these first couple verses here, we're, we're laying out what is going on and how Yahweh is, um, in some pretty, I don't know, some pretty interesting language here, selling them, sold them into the hand of Jabin or Jabin, the king of Canaan. So the Lord is once again using these foreign powers as a thorn in their side, just as he promised he would because of their um, unfaithfulness. Uh, take us through what that looks like. So as the Lord... The Lord actually does sell them. Uh, some would want to take this as more metaphorical, like simply handing them over, surrendering them. But the language doesn't allow that. It does express what you would do to a slave, handing somebody over to another master. And as Israel belonged to Yahweh as servant, as son, as slave, now he gives them over to those who they gave themselves into, that they joined themselves to the Canaanites, both in terms of worship and other practices. So if you want to have this as your master, I'm going to sell you, that, sell you into their slavery. I really think that's part of the background of selling them into the hand of Jabin. And Jabin 
may be what you'd call a, a throne name, that he is part of a, um, a dynasty, that this name appears several times. So it could be like Abimelech from uh, Genesis, so that he, they are found under this master's slavery for several years. Not simply one ruler, but perpetually, that they have bound themselves into this kind of life, into this kind of idolatry, uh, which Joshua had warned about. Oh, go ahead. Mm-hmm. All you can say, that I mean, that does make a lot of sense. It says that he oppressed the people cruelly for 20 years. The, the he here doesn't have to mean like this one guy. It just, as you could say, it could very well refer to a variety of different rulers within this same, as you said, dynasty. That's, that's a possibility. Um, and the other interesting aspect about this is when they first cry out, it, took, it only took eight years for them to cry out. Then it went up to 18 years. Now it's up to 20 years. Um, it's rather interesting that they become almost settled within this familiarity with the Canaanites, that they are lulled into this life of oppression from the Canaanites, as if God had not promised to deliver them. They're just settling into this slavery kind of life. Well, and we see that time and again, right? I mean, we, we talked about how God sold them into the hand of the king of Canaan, but at the same time, these people are really selling themselves. We're getting these, we're getting these, uh, these visions of when they were in, um, in Egypt and they were being freed from Egypt, and they were things like they're saying things like, "Well, didn't we tell you, Moses, that we would rather just stay with the Egyptians instead of die here?" It seems like humanity whether it's here in the time of Deborah or whether it's even now, really just finds comfort almost in being controlled. And whereas a good master like God would lead us to the righteous living, um, I don't know, it just seems like maybe it's our concupiscence or whatever, but we tend to keep going back to those things that aren't good for us and going back to those masters uh, who aren't really for us. And yet here we see that again. Well, that's the reason we need to keep a, a Christological and salvation focus in the book of Judges, especially here, because the issue isn't so much Deborah and Barak, but rather the Lord raising up particular people for his deliverance. And if we don't see Christ as the ultimate Barak, if you will, as the ultimate judge, then you're left with simply a political or social struggle, a religious struggle. And at that point, does it really matter who wins? Because you see religious struggles all over the world through all time, but this is a directive that has a particular goal for the, the deliverance of God's people out of a slavery, not economic, not social, but rather um, a spiritual, that they are bound to the slavery unto death. And unless you see Christ being the ultimate judge, you won't see the deliverance that he provides in the book of Judges and the salvation that he, he brings to, to free one from death and oppression, which are, which are lively, if you will, in this present world. And so that, those two must be kept in the, not in the background, but as the way you read the book of Judges, especially, I think, J- Judges chapters 4 and 5. Well, absolutely. And we have also right here at the beginning of this narrative, uh, the introduction of Sisera, right? So he's the commander of the army. 
And the people are afraid because, and they cry out to Yahweh because they say he had 900 chariots of iron. Um, that seems like a very specific kind of reason to be afraid. I assume that that's a little bit more symbolic of just his powerful uh, military apparatus, but 900 chariots of iron. Uh, I don't know. I, I guess I'm getting some, uh, again, some more, some more Egyptian vibes here. Oh, well, there may be, of course, that distinct echo. Uh, the, the chariots would have controlled the flatlands, the Shephelah, the, the plains of Jezreel, where farming could have taken place, where you could feed more people by means of agriculture. And if Cicero controls the flatlands, you are relegated to the highlands, where maybe agriculture is not as productive. So Israel is kept in the spine, if you will, the, the central spine of mountains in, in Israel, and doesn't have an opportunity for trade, for food, but must be kept to the highlands. Uh, chapter 5 speaks about the caravans being shut down, uh, people not being able to dwell in the open. So Cicero is controlling the transportation routes. He's controlling the sea routes, as it were, on land. Strange word. Uh, but he, his intent is to sort of control the food production, the trade, for Israel and therefore master them in every aspect. And the chariots of iron are probably um, iron-rimmed wheels uh, versus wood wheels, which would allow them greater endurance and um, greater usage over the, um, the plains of Jezreel. Mm. Interesting. Well, let's let's go in now to the introduction of Deborah then. So in verse 4, it says, Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at that time. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah. Well, that's convenient, right? Well, of course, when this is being told, it's probably uh, been called the palm of Deborah because she sat there. She didn't pick it because it was named after her or named after another Deborah. Uh, but what I find interesting about this, and correct me if I'm wrong, this is really the only point in judges where a judge is doing some sort of what we would think of as judging. Yes, it is. Um, and that's raises a question, of course, because it's connected with Deborah, a prophetess wife of Lapidoth. Um, so what kind of judging was she doing? It sounds as if she's doing the same kind of oversight that those who were given the spirit in Exodus were given. Um, I do think we must be careful with pointing to Deborah here, because nothing is, if you will, ordinary in the time of judges. Everybody's doing what is right in their own eyes. And in particular, it would be the men who are failing to lead. And to hold out Deborah as an example today I think is misleading and misreading the text. She fills, one might say, a, a vacuum of leadership in Israel, which is not to be commended, but simply to highlight how men have failed to be proper deliverers or judges in Israel. So she's highlighted in this particular way. And notice she is connected with a, a man uh, she's not altered by herself, taking the reins of justice or power, or judging by herself. Uh, she sees herself, it's reported that she is under her husband, connected with a particular man. 
So, you know, a prophet, broadly speaking, is someone who spoke for God. And, and we do have this title, prophetess. We think of Miriam, as you pointed out earlier in Exodus 15, um, Huldah in 2 Kings. So receiving revelation from God typically isn't the normal role of a judge and judges, but we, we get a little bit of that from her because she's, she's talking to, when she calls out Barak, she's saying what God has commanded him to do. So it seems as though that knowledge about what God has called him to do, including the words, because she says, has not Yahweh, the God of Israel, commanded you? And she tells him what he said. Is that her doing the communicating for God to him? Or is that her recalling for him what she had heard in some other way that God had called him to do? Either way, as you said, she's taking up this leadership role to say, listen, um, you know, uh, I already forgot his name, Barack. She's like, hey, listen, Barack, you know, did God tell you to go and stand up to this army? And, and she's calling him to account. I mean, whether this is, I mean, I'm not saying that this should be normalized, but at the same time, there is a time for when, if men are not stepping up to leadership roles, that the, the women have to do it to their shame, which is kind of one of the themes of this chapter. It, it is. And I think overall, it's part of the theme of the book of Judges. Women become prominent at certain times when men have tragically failed in their leadership, in their, if you will, their, their judging. Now, uh, regarding, um, oh, what did you say? Oh, prophetess. Um, I don't necessarily believe that prophetess demands a foretelling that is something in the future, but rather a word of encouragement, like Paul uses it in 1 Corinthians 14, or maybe Peter in 1 Peter 4, if I'm not mistaken, that when the word is used, it can be encouragement. So it could be, and I'm going on some argument from Joshua that, as Israel was to drive out the Canaanites, Barak should have understood that that was his role, and he has failed to do that. So Deborah is offering him encouragement based upon a prior word from Joshua that he should take up his role and now deliver Israel from the Canaanites. So she takes on the role of an encourager, uh, less than we think of a, a one who speaks about the future. So that's how I would understand the word prophetess here. Sure. I, I would agree with that. I will say, too, though, and just to add to this conversation, you know, we have this necessity because of, of the clear teachings of Scripture in terms of women in, in leadership, uh, spiritual leadership in particular, um, that sometimes the, the idea gets put out there that women would be somehow incapable of exercising these roles of leadership. And I think this is an example of, of proof, really, from the Scriptures where God has never said that women would be necessarily incapable of, of these types of spiritual leadership, only that it's not within his design that they take them on. Because as you said, because of the failure of men to step up and do their role, she's had to step up and do it. So this proves that it's not that, that certain women don't have the, the capabilities, that would not be proper to say in my opinion, but rather it's not a cannot, but a may not, that God is not designed or ordered things in that way. Would you agree with that? Sure. What you find in Genesis chapter 2 with the, the woman to be a help meet, one appropriate for the man, 
It certainly speaks to, to capacity of a woman to have the abilities, God-endowed abilities. But it is not the given position for the woman to have this in these circumstances. And certainly we find women lauded throughout the scriptures. Uh, Miriam leading the women in Exodus 15 in song. And we have the song of Deborah then, of course, in Judges 5. And we have Proverbs 31 lauding the, the, the ruler of the house, one might almost say, with the, the woman who is worth many fine gems. So, yeah, we, we have to be careful in today's culture. When you speak, it can easily sound as if you are excluding, excluding or denigrating women because of may not. But every office has its particular duties and responsibilities that's calling from God to be fully exercised. And Barak is put to shame. He will not get the glory, but a woman will. Uh, not being Deborah, but rather Jael at this instance. So, yes, it is a matter of not cannot, uh, but may not. That is capacity versus office. Yeah, let's look at that. So after she tells him what Yahweh, the God of Israel, had commanded him, right? Go to Mount Tabor, take 10,000, etc., etc. And then she notes that God said, and I will give him into your hands. So Barak is being uh, told by Deborah or reminded by Deborah, however you want to take it, that God has called him to uh, go up against Sisera, against his 900 Iron Age chariots and everything else with 10,000 people. But he has told him in no uncertain terms that he will succeed. I will give him into your hand. And yet Barak in verse 8, it says, Barak said to her, yeah, I'll go, but you have to go with me. And I just think that this is uh, to Barak's shame, regardless of whether whether uh, Deborah was a woman or whether this was would have been Isaiah or, or Ezekiel or someone telling him, David himself telling him. I, I think the, the shame there really comes even more so from the fact that he has been given clear prophecy from God that that he will succeed, and Barak basically doesn't trust that enough. He wants he wants someone to go with him. Help us unpack why he's saying like, what's I mean is this a is this a mark of cowardice? Is it a lack of faith? Is it because Deborah's presence would ensure Yahweh's presence? Why does Barak insist that she go with him? You know, it could be all of those in various amounts. Uh, I do think that he does not trust the word. I think that must be primary, and out of that lack of trust would come the cowardice, if you want to call it that, or the desire to have somebody go with him. Uh, so when the word is spoken, the word has been spoken many, many, many times since they left Egypt, that God will surely deliver his people. He'll put them into the land. And they have seen testimony, the signs, if you will, the manna crossing the sea, the victories in the wilderness, coming into the land under Joshua. The word has been proved true. So Barak's hesitation has to do with holding fast to that word, despite all the circumstances which would mitigate or cause anybody to doubt the word. Hold fast to the word, even though it is simply a spoken word. So I think that's where Brock's issue is. And Deborah says, hold fast to the word. She does indeed. But she also says, okay, fine. I'll go with you. I'll go with you. 
And then that's where we get this a little bit of uh, irony. And, and it's it's really neat uh, because, I mean, you've already said, you know, even the title of the show is giving it away. It's Jael who is the one who gets the glory. But we don't know that yet because it says, nevertheless, the road on which you're going won't lead to your glory. But uh, Yahweh will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. And, and I think the reader is supposed to suppose at this point that that woman is Deborah. Because it says Barak called out Zebulun and Naphtali to Kadesh. 10,000 men went up on his heels, and Deborah went with him. Went with him, uh, yes. Yep. Well, that's where we're going to have to stop for just a moment because we are right here at time for our break. So, folks, don't go anywhere. When we return, we will keep on going with Judges chapter 4. See you on the other side. These are the voices of young Lutherans in Mexico City, children who are excited to learn more about their Savior, Jesus. But they need our help, because good Lutheran books for kids in the Spanish language are in short supply in Mexico. To learn how you can help tell Spanish-speaking kids everywhere about Jesus in a language they can understand, go to the Lutheran Heritage Foundation website at lhfmissions.org forward slash Juan316. Welcome back, folks, to Thy Strong Word. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boone. With me today is the Reverend Stuart Crown. He's the pastor of Trinity Lutheran Church in Palo Alto, California. Before we get back into the text, I just want to thank you for joining us today as we study Judges. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, not only can you find me on Facebook, you can just send me a message directly to pastorboo at gmail.com. I keep getting your uh, emails, folks, and I reply to them, and I just love hearing from you. And if you like hearing from us and enjoy listening to Thy Strong Word, I'm just going to ask you a favor, right? I ask you to do me a favor. Share. Share the share the love of the show with your friends and your family. You know, Thy Strong Word can be heard in so many different ways, uh, live on the radio in St. Louis, live on KFUO.org, or even on demand there. You can also listen to it on the KFUO app. That's what I use in my truck. I love it. I listen to Sharper Iron, Concord Matters. Thy Strong Word. Okay, I I don't usually listen to my own show, but sometimes I do. Anyway, I love listening to KFUO through the app. Um, You can also listen as a podcast. I'm just encouraged that you tune in and grow in faith with me and my guests each week. So thanks for listening. All right, Pastor Crown, we're back and we're going to get right back into the text. This is one of the more famous, I think, stories of judges. This is one that comes up in Sunday school, although I think they downplay the part at the end a little bit. But, but here we left, we left out with Barack, uh, finally, you know, taking Deborah with him. Okay. I'll go with you. She says, um, but she, she does tell him though, that if that's going to happen, just so you know, you're probably not going to get the glory in the end. In fact, he won't anything else that you want the uh, listeners to hear before we, before we read a few more verses of the text. How the Lord sets up for his own victory. Whatever weaknesses men may have, and indeed women might have, in terms of their vocations, God is the one who provides the victory. 
through all of our weaknesses, through Paul's clay vessel, through our clay vessels, uh, it is the grace of God, which is to be seen, the strength of the Holy Spirit, which is to be magnified. And you see that clearly here, as long as we keep Christ uh, at the center. It's a, it's a wonderful uh, story, not to minimize, of course, the historicity, but a wonderful story of encouragement for God's people in that way. Amen to that. All right, I'm just going to read verses 11 through 16. It just gets us a little bit more into what is happening. Now, Heber, the Kenite, had separated from the Kenites, uh, the descendants of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, and had pitched his tent as far away as the oak in Za'anamim, which is near Kadesh. When Sisera was told that Barak, the son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor, Sisera called out all his chariots, 900 chariots of iron, and all the men who were with him, from Herosheth Hagoim to the river Kishon. And Deborah said to Barak, Up, for this is the day in which Yahweh has given Sisera into your hand. Does not Yahweh go out before you? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him, and Yahweh rooted Sisera and all his chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled away on foot. And Barak pursued the chariots and the army to Harosheth Hagoim, and all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not a man was left. Well, not a man was left except for Sisera, of course, who flew away. Uh, <laughs> so here we are. We have him, and, and what, ha what has been said by the word of the Lord has come to pass. 10,000 men up against uh, 900 chariots of iron, and then, of course, don't, let's not forget all the men who are with him. Uh, do we really have any idea of how big his army was? Is, is that anywhere in the scripture that you know about? Or, or you know, is this an unfair fight? Is God really showing his might here in that way? I, I guess, what are we to take from this? I think that the numbers are to emphasize what seems like Sisera's tactical advantage. You have 10,000 men on a hill coming down into the plain. That looks like a route because the chariots and whatever foot soldiers should be able to easily conquer men coming down a hill onto the plain. So uh, we have, again, the, the weakness of men against the, the strength of God. What men perceive to be the strength of the chariots becomes the weakness because God uses his creation to fight against man's strength, namely the chariots. And what looks like foolishness, men coming down a hill, becomes the strength because it's God's men, or rather his might fighting, rather than mere men fighting. Uh, pride gets the best of Sisera, one might say, and so they are easily overwhelmed by their, their pride. You know, they, they fall in their own chariots. We're introduced at the very beginning of this to Heber, or Heber the Kenite, who had separated from the Kenites. Uh, he's going to come up again. It's, it's worth uh, just pointing that out at this point. Uh, but uh, So Sisera calls out all of his chariots, and as you said, so I'm, I'm trying to get the picture in my head. They're coming down the hill. These guys, because they're technologically superior, probably better trained, better led, they, they should have had no problem taking care of them. But they, of course, lose, and that is because, and the credit is all given by the author of Judges to, of course, Yahweh. 
Yahweh rooted Sisera and all his chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. So Sisera, he's not much of a, a courageous leader. I mean, maybe he just sees what's happening and he's not going to go down with the ship because it says that he hops down from his chariot and he runs away. I just think that's an interesting detail. It certainly paints Sisera in a bad light. Anything else from this little section before we go on that's important for people to know? For all the uh, the bluster, if you will, that Sisera has tried to prove by his chariots, and then the contrast with Barak, who seems a little bit weak, depending upon the presence of a woman, it actually then becomes reversed. That Barak actually does have victory over Sisera, and Sisera ends up in the company of a woman, but not living, but rather dead. So there's that mm. uh, the irony within the story. It's a great storytelling method, if you will. Uh, the weak man becomes strong, and the strong man becomes weak. And neither one, neither man stands by himself, if you will. But women have a great deal to say to the story of how the story has this, uh, this twist for God's glory. And that's an interesting detail, too, because we're told that not a man was left. And then I had noted, well, you know, of course, Sisera's left because he ran away. A couple different ways to look at that. You know, one way, which a lot of the commentators say is, well, it's just being proverbial um, because Sisera ran away. But I think I like how you put it better, and that is that Sisera is as good as dead. <laughs> so he is he's yeah. not going to last. Yeah, that's no. much more vivid. And, and also, I think it might be obvious to most folks, but it's worth pointing out, this isn't the entire army of the Canaanites, obviously, or we wouldn't have much left in Judges. This is just the portion of the army from this area that's being controlled by Sisera. So I just think that's worth pointing out. Uh, let's, uh, let's read now. Oh, let's see. Let's see here. Verses 17 through 22. But Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite. For there was peace between Jabin the king of Hazor and the house of Heber the Kenite. And Jael came out to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn aside, my lord, turn aside to me, do not be afraid. So he turned aside to her into the tent, and she covered him with a rug. And he said to her, Please give me a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. And so she opened a skin of milk and gave him a drink and covered him. And he said to her, Stand at the opening of the tent. If any man comes and asks you, Is anyone here? Say no. But Jael, the wife of Heber, took a tent peg, and she took a hammer in her hand. And then she went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple until it went down into the ground while he was laying fast asleep from weariness. So he died. And behold, as Barak was pursuing Sisera, Jael went out to meet him and said to him, Come, and I will show you the man whom you are seeking. So he went into her tent, and there lay Sisera dead with the tent peg in his temple. Uh, again, just in terms of good storytelling, we have him, her calling him in. This is going to be safe. She covers him up. She tucks him in, basically. She gives him a little drink, and he goes to sleep, and then she softly goes and hammers a rusty tent spike into his head. Uh, just just amazing dynamic storytelling. Uh, but why don't you take us through it and show us how, as graphic as this is, uh, this is God at work. Yeah, this is really quite the antithesis of Middle Eastern ancient cultural hospitality, that rather than welcoming him in for safety, she welcomes him in to kill him. 
the again the antithesis of what a woman ought to do. So she invites him in, and with the tent floor being dirt, she covers him up with the rug, hides him. Who's going to look under a tent rug? Because you typically typically find a rug in a tent, and then. But women were the ones who set up the tents in the Middle Eastern culture. So she was skilled at handling a hammer. And by the way, that word hammer is the same word for the root of Maccabee, right? The, the hammers for the um, second century Israelite kingdom, the Maccabeans. She takes the hammer, and it's probably a wooden spike, uh, given that you have to make identification of the iron-rimmed wheels of the chariots, Israelites probably would not have would not have had, or the Canaanites would not have had, access to easy iron to use for all the tent pegs. So she, so she takes an, a wooden tent peg and uh, dispatches the man with relative ease, and he dies in the tent, not as a warrior, but rather one who has sought refuge, a coward. Yeah, you know, so as vivid as I'd like to describe it being as a rusty tent peg, I think your details there are interesting, it being a wooden one. Um, I certainly don't doubt that, but it does bring to my mind the feasibility of driving a wooden tent into someone's head. Uh, skulls are about as strong as concrete, so, I mean, we get the, I get the image that she does it within a few blows, or at least the first blow kills him. I don't want to be too graphic, but... I'm just thinking she must she must have been a, a really strong gal <laughs> and this must have been a very sturdy wooden tent peg to pierce the the, the hardness of concrete or sorry a brick, like a concrete brick which is what the skull yeah. is and drive it right into the ground. Yeah, most of the women in judges do seem to be extraordinarily vigorous, strong like the woman in Thebes who throws the millstone down mm-hmm. um, and millstones weren't so light. So I, I do think that this emphasizes the distinction between the, the sister of the warrior, who was supposed to have been so strong with his iron chariots, and then, uh, if you will, a mere woman who invites him in for hospitality and ends up, ends up conquering a great warrior. I do think that's well, the, the radical contrast. And it does say that there was peace between Jabin the king of Hazor and, and the house of Heber the Kenite. We get this idea that Jael was familiar with Sisera, of course, but also that Sisera must have been pretty comfortable and familiar with her. Uh, she invites him inside, tells him not to be afraid, um, and then she covers him up, as we've already covered. But then it's, he asks for a little water, but she gives him a skin of milk. Now, one of the commentators that I was looking at said, and I don't know if this is a stretch or not, or if you found this interesting or found it at all, and that is that some goat milk, goat's milk can cause drowsiness, and they're suggesting that that was part of the premeditation to get him sleepy. Although the Bible clearly says he fell asleep because he was weary. Even with all that said, the fact that he falls asleep even out of weariness, I mean, he's hiding for his entire life, and he starts napping under the rug. It just It's just a strange description of what's going on. It just doesn't seem consistent with what you would expect. No, it doesn't. And I do think that's really, again, part of the storytelling that the Holy Spirit uses here. I, I don't think the skin of milk represents something fermented to cause him to become drowsy. That probably would have been wine. 
if she really wanted to incapacitate him, she could have given him some strong wine. I think that this simply says hospitality plus. Not simply water, but milk. And sure. I think the contrast is between Barack wanting Deborah to come with him, and now we have JL saying, Sister, come here, I will help you. The sort of twist in the conversation, but Barack wants a woman to come, and now JL wants a man to come to into her tent. But the consequences are entirely different. Uh, Barack does get the concession from Deborah that she'll accompany him, and he gets the victory. But now Sisera, taking the advice of a woman, dies. Mm-hmm. Wow! So I, you know... I do think that there's some some great storytelling here that upend expectations for the purpose well, what, of the gospel. One thing we are definitely not told is how um, her husband feels about it. And, and the reason, the only reason I bring that up is, you know, Heber's, you know, he's cozy with the king of the Canaanites. Here's this woman. She's, she's breaking all of these cultural rules, inviting a man into her tent. Um, she's giving him hospitality. But as you said, it's a pretext for, you know, murdering him and violating an agreement of their peace between each other. Um, I mean, Jamin would, I mean, sorry, Jabin would end up falling from power. So I don't think they really had anything to worry about, but still it's, it's, it's just an, as you said, it's this upending expectations. Um, is there any purposeful, uh, foreshadowing of the, the spike in Jesus's hands? You know, is that, is it reading too much into it? Or is it just oh, it's always worth looking forward to Jesus? Because we're seeing here a salvation of the Israelites by means of uh, of an execution by Spike. Uh, what do you think? Maybe too much? What do you think? So wherever there is water, there is baptism. Wherever there is bread, there is communion. Wherever there's a wooden spike, there's the crucifixion. Um, yeah. I do think that there are ways that the Holy Spirit compels us if you will, who drives us to remembrance of the crucifixion. So even if it were not a direct allusion, you cannot but think of what's happening to Sisera and then say would and think, aha, the cross. So it is a direct line, but maybe not by means, but by recollection, a remembrance of the words of Scripture. And that would be one reason, of course, to use one translation for your readings all the time so that you can make these connections, these associations, these, as um, Francis Rousseau used to say, these gospel handles mm-hmm. yep. to hold on to that. Yeah, right. And I think that's an important point, that it doesn't always have to be intentional on the point of the author to be a valid way to be reminded of what God does later. Yes, you know, J.L. proves herself a very wise woman. Uh, the men in this story are somewhat slow. Uh, Barack doesn't want to hold on to the promise. Sisera thinks he has us all conquered. Uh, Jabin, likewise. And except the, the women who understand what's going on. Uh, J.L. says, my husband didn't do well by making an alliance with these Canaanites, and I'm going to take care of this. So she thwarts her husband's foolishness, not mm-hmm. unlike Abigail and, um, and Nabal uh, in David's time. Sure. The, the women yeah. just seem to have, in Scripture, at a, on occasion, this insight, 
which upsets, if you will, um, what today might be called the patriarchal narrative. That there's always a reminder that uh, men and women are endowed as image of God and have wisdom. Right. Well, what did God say? It is not good that the man is alone, right? There's something to be said about the fact that that God has given uh, men, women uh, as, you know, uh, co-stewards of creation, as, as, as a helper in this. And I think that's just part of it, you know, to make everyone the same as culture does today, to try to say that there really aren't any complementary features between men and women is to really deny, it's really trying to turn all women into men and making everybody men, as opposed to uh, appreciating the unique value and wisdom that comes from having a woman's perspective. And I think part of that is sometimes seeing past the machismo into the reality of what's going on. And here you have men who are, as we said at the beginning, refusing to deal with things in a realistic way and the women having to step up and do that. And that brings us to really mm-hmm. 22, which we already read. So Barack is running after Sisera and JL now runs out again and she goes to meet him and she says, I know who you're looking for. Why don't you <laughs> come and I will show you the man whom you're seeking. And he's probably thinking, oh, she's got him in there. She's got her, her womanly wiles. Maybe she seduced him or, you know, I'm being a little facetious, but she walks in and she's like, no, I drove a temp peg through his head. <laughs> I just, I don't know. It's just vividly uh, uh, graphic, I suppose. No, I, th- I think you're right. That's sort of the surprise that one will have here. That now, what could she have done to capture Sisera? She has a tent. What could she do? Her husband's away. Where is her husband? She can't do much. And yet, she's the one who gains the glory, the honor for dispatching Sisera. The last two verses of our text read as follows. So on that day, God subdued Jabin, the king of Canaan, before the people of Israel. And the hand of the people of Israel pressed harder and harder against Jabin, the king of Canaan, until they destroyed Jabin, king of Canaan. So we have it all summed up there in just a couple of verses that because of this victory, I guess because of courage and now faith in God's promises a little bit more, a little bit more secure, they're, they're fighting all the more to defeat the king of Canaan, which they do. Um, certainly a good way to wrap that up. Um, anything else in this text before we end the program today? I, I do think that we need to take into consideration here that whatever foibles individuals have, Barak in particular, God is able to use the perceived weak, Barak, the perceived weak, Jael, to gain a victory for himself. So the song in Judges 5 isn't, of course, directed to simply the praise of the turning around of the story, that all of a sudden there's this David and Goliath battle, and and David wins out. But rather, this is God's ongoing story of fighting for his people in the most unexpected manner. The, The foolish, if you will, come out on top, because this is the way God is designed to bring down the pride of man. We can look to maybe Luke chapter 1 with Zechariah's song at, uh, at his son's birth, uh, and Mary's Magnificat, the, the turning of expectations on their head. And that is our hope also, expectations turned on their head, that the, the powerful, the rich, 
have been sent away empty. Already, it's already happened. Uh, Christ has gained his victory. He's made mockery of the powers of this world by his triumph on the cross, shown by our Lord's death and resurrection and then his ascension. And that's where we fix our eyes, upon that proclaimed word. That will give his people, us, that intent which we see in verse 23, to press on, if you will. Not because we must fight to overcome, but because the victory has already been granted to us in our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, amen to that, and that's something we should definitely remember this next week, coming Holy Week. Uh, Folks, I'd like to thank my guest this morning, the Reverend Stuart Crown. He's the pastor of Trinity Lutheran Church in Palo Alto, California. By the way, before we go, Pastor, how's the weather out there in California? It's freezing here in Minnesota. Oh, it is right now beautiful. It's in the uh, low 50s. We're having a sunshine, a day of sunshine, and we'll be getting ready for some uh, rain and some cooler temperatures next week. Okay. Okay, I could get on board with 50s. I was, if you were going to say 70s yeah. or something, I was going to be very upset. But no, <laughs> 50s no, would not, be like not, spring not here. No. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, so much. Uh, thank you so much for being on the show, brother. I look forward to having you on again. I hope you get feeling better. Ah, so do I. I need this. I need uh, another day of rest before next week begins. Oh, yeah, it's a worse time for pastors to be uh, <laughs> under the weather. Uh, folks is. at home, Holy Week, uh, as we just alluded to, begins with Palm Sunday, this Sunday. And you know what? I know it's a lot of church, <laughs> but I genuinely encourage you to make yourself available to all the special services that your local LCMS congregation offers during this special time. Um, and also, be sure to join me right here on Thy Strong Word, too. On Holy Monday, we're going to tackle this story again, but as it is told through poetry in Chapter 5, so don't miss that. Also, be sure to check out our special free text First Friday episode, which will be on Good Friday, where I'll have two guest pastors join me as we reflect on the last words of Jesus from the cross. So there's lots of uh, things to look forward to as Thy Strong Word returns next week right here on KFUO. Until then, may God's peace and blessings be with you all as we pray, Father, keep us in Thy Strong Word. Thank you, you too.